One, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. For our program for Green Left this week, we are going to be having a discussion with Annie White who is an activist with Fight Back New Zealand about the recent New Zealand election result, which has seen the Labor government led by Jacinda Ardern win an outright majority off the back of its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I guess to start off this discussion, Annie, um, what can you tell us, I guess, about this the electoral result in New Zealand, I guess, and its significance? Yeah, so as you said, obviously we've had uh, Jacinda's Labour Party uh, get a landslide, landslide victory. This is pretty historic in terms of the scale of the victory. So it was the biggest uh, shift in votes in a century. Uh, and it's also historic under MMP, which is the uh, mixed member proportional system which is a system that has generally allowed minor parties to have more influence. Uh, but this is the first time uh, that a party under MMP is likely to be governing alone without even, potentially without even confidence and supply agreements or anything. And I've heard suggestions on the left that this means they can better implement a kind of a left-wing agenda. But I think the opposite is the case because what you know, if you look at the MMP uh, and what MMP means, it was brought in essentially because both Labour and national governments were introducing neoliberal reforms, and there was a kind of a popular support for proportional representation to curb the parties. So now, with this kind of historic landslide for Labour, where they've managed to win over the middle, they're not going to want to to lose the middle. And they're also, they also have no reason to be accountable to, for example, the Greens. They don't need the Greens. So yes, it means they can kind of do what they want, but it does seem like uh, what they want is to govern for the middle. So yeah, it's a, it's a historic win, but I think probably a historic win for the centre rather than a swing to the left. Okay. Well, going in from that, um, because I guess from my understanding, as a result of this, Labor now has an increased majority. And I guess looking at the last kind of um, election, there was this whole thing where the New Zealand government was criticised heavily because they had to, to govern, they had to get in a coalition with New Zealand First, which is from my understanding, uh, a, a kind of right wing kind of nationalist party, almost akin to sort of one nation in Australia. And I guess... I want to kind of hear you kind of expand a bit more on this. How was um, the Jacinta Ardern government able to kind of win over this kind of centre uh, in terms of its support base? Give us a bit more of what the kind of implicate, political implications of this increased majority, which you've alluded to. Yeah, so I mean, the winning over the centre, in large part, it's a matter of very competent crisis management, uh, some symbolic commitments and uh, an unwillingness to take any really radical measures. So in in the 2017 election, they came in talking about uh, climate change as the nuclear-free moment of our generation, but they haven't really made any sort of radical changes uh, that are needed to address climate change. 
whereas, you know, they have one over, for example, the, the South Island, all of the rural seats in the South Island party voted Labour, which is quite unusual. So, so they have managed to win over kind of middle voters, even conservative voters. And I think they're very aware of that. So, you know, on the, on the election night, there was a lot of talk of governing for all New Zealanders. And this came not just from Jacinda, uh, but also, for example, from, uh, Grant Robertson, who's a, who's a prominent MP within the party. They both used this phrase of governing for all New Zealanders. Uh, the press very much picked that up and, and ran with it. Uh, and I think that very much indicates that by saying we will not scare the horses, you know, we will govern for the centre. Uh, you could also see it in, in Jacinda's acceptance speech, uh, when she, uh, she sort of talked about how the world is polarizing and we need different sides to listen to each other. She basically said the left needs to be willing to listen to the right. So it's, yeah, very much, uh, the, the line has been that they've been able to win over the centre. They've probably gained votes actually from National, the, the right wing opposition party. So, uh, they don't want to lose those, those middle voters. That's, that's kind of very much the, the message that's being hammered home. Yeah. Well, I guess that gets into, I guess, the next question, which is, because coming from someone who's in um, Melbourne at the moment, one of the kind of things that has, I guess, been quite striking about um, Jacinda Ardern's sort of government has been its popularity and success in terms of handling, I guess, the COVID-19 pandemic. And you could argue that it's one of the best performing countries in that context. But what has, in, in that context, what has really been the response of the right to this electoral result, especially since I have been reading some criticism to the right um, that indicates some criticism of the lockdown measures that New Zealand um, did, especially in relation to the um, classic economy. Yeah, so I definitely think it's true that this government's handling of COVID has been very competent. You know, it's been the best in the Anglosphere uh, in terms of just basic public health measures and being willing to apply some restrictions. And the criticisms of the right opposition have been pretty incoherent. So it's sort of been the usual. Uh, the lockdown is too restrictive. Next minute, it's not restrictive enough. Uh, the borders are too politely, too, too, sorry, too tightly policed and then not tightly policed enough. They're really, they've really been on the attack in a fairly incoherent way. And I think even a lot of people on the right didn't like the, uh, the last leader of the national party, uh, Judith Collins, who has always been kind of an attack dog and pretty vicious. Uh, so yeah, she, I think, uh, Collins was kind of able to hold on to the sort of more militant elements of Nash, the national party, but wasn't really able to, to win over the middle. So I think it's, yeah, uh, I don't, she's really, can, uh, convincingly sold herself as a, as a competent crisis manager. But then, you know, if you look at some of the measures, there's, there are some issues with them. I mean, uh, one of them is that they've kind of set up a two-tier benefit system where people who lost work as a result of COVID, uh, get, get more money 
than people who didn't have work prior to that. So there's a kind of a deserving and undeserving poor element to how they've how they've designed it. They've increased police powers, which I think it's you know you can see, you can see why with the need for lockdown measures, but it potentially sets sets a bad precedent. Uh, there's been problems in terms of how how migrant workers had to deal with the situation and uh, now they're introducing charges for uh, returning New Zealanders so it's it's not necessarily a very equitable handling of the crisis but I mean it's certainly a competent handling in terms of just basic public health measures and I think what we're seeing is there's this real worship of Jacinda internationally and I think it's just, it's, to me, it's like an index of how bad things are elsewhere. You know, the fact that we've got someone like Donald Trump in the highest office in the world, really, uh, somebody who's flagrantly racist, uh, incompetent and ignorant. So just some kind of baseline competence and public health measures, which should, should be really universal, uh, are taken as, as exceptional. So I guess the thing, the the point is not necessarily that this is an incompetent government or what have you. It's simply that it's not a government that's willing to take any radical measures. It is a government of the centre and the middle. And I don't think people should have illusions about about the nature of this government. Uh, and yeah, I mean the right that it was very it was surprisingly self reflective on the night actually that they were talking. Uh, the National Party were talking about their own failure, uh, their own lack of discipline. A lot of a lot of talking heads were kind of prodding them to admit that Judith Collins, the leader, was part of the problem, but they they nobody actually stuck the knife in. But yeah, it just has it's been a, a negative campaign. It drove a lot of people away, and I think they're kind of aware of that. Uh, and and people are just aware that this government has handled. COVID competently. That's how they were able to win over right-wing and middle voters. Yeah. Well, going, um, respond to one of the, I guess, the points you kind of raised there. I'm kind of interested in, I guess, knowing in what the actual track record of the Shacinda Arden administration is from a left-wing perspective, because I guess, yeah, I, I noticed it as well, uh, amongst the kind of left in, um, in Australia or even internationally, uh, Jacinda Arden is kind of like, put forward as this, you know, amazing left-wing leader um, that we should all aspire to kind of be. And, of course, there's even been some comparisons I've even noticed from sort of UK Labour circles, which almost somewhat see Jacinda Ardern as almost equivalent to kind of Jeremy Corbyn. So I I guess I want to kind of hear a bit more detail on what is the actual track record from a left-wing perspective. Yeah, well, well, in terms of the UK comparison, I think the thing to consider there is that she started out her career working for Tony Blair. So, I mean, I think she's maybe comparable to Corbyn in the sense that she has a strong, uh, she has a sort of a, a dedicated following, a much larger dedicated following, but still, you know, is a, is a figure who is able to inspire and mobilize people. But her politics are certainly not Corbyn's. They're not that kind of traditional social, social democratic politics. Uh, and I mean, in 2017, she very much came in with lines like, again, this is the nuclear, the, uh, 
that climate change is the nuclear-free moment of our generation, which people may not be aware, New Zealand banned uh, nuclear shipping in the 80s, so that's what that was a reference to. But, you know, to take that example, the, the example of climate change, uh, this government introduced the, the zero carbon bill, but that is not really remotely adequate. They quite actively sought the input of the National Party. Uh, so basically it's a, it's a climate bill that's approved by the right. And because of that, it's inherently compromised. So it embedded the emissions trading approach, which, uh, which people will be aware, uh, has created new markets and not been able to curb emissions. Uh, it excluded major emitters. Uh, it was non-binding. So it really was completely inadequate for this, but essentially species threatening situation we have right now. Uh, it was really much more of a, of a symbolic commitment rather than, rather than being willing to take on, you know, extractive capital, agricultural capital, and make the sort of changes that are actually required to, to prevent runaway climate change. So yeah, that's just one example. It's been similar with indigenous rights. So there's a, a land struggle called Ihumatau. Uh, which is basically against, uh, against property developers and for a, uh, a Māori kinship group, uh, iwi to, to have control of that land. And Jacinda has refused to take any explicit position on that. She's refused to p- even visit the site when petitioned to do so. Uh, she's really just not been willing to up- upset the horses on that and other issues. I mean, the Christchurch shooting is another example where, you know, she was praised for wearing the the headscarf, which I can understand. And again, in an international situation where you have someone like Donald Trump leading the free world, it seems pretty exceptional for someone to simply respect Muslim customs at a funeral. But that, I think, is just a sign of how low the bar is, that simply respecting the customs at a funeral is really exceptional. But what she did after March 15th was actually beef up police powers, give police more guns. Uh, fortunately, that trial with, of police having guns kind of collapsed and uh, has been reversed after, after popular opposition. But, uh, yeah, I definitely think on a whole range of, of policy areas, it's been a very compromised government and very unwilling to take any radical measures. Uh, and I think now that they're talking about governing for all New Zealanders and they're very aware that they, you know, have this base in the middle, uh, they're going to be, con- they're going to continue to be unwilling to, to really scare the horses in any way or to make any radical changes. Unless, you know, unless their hand is forced. I mean, again, their, their hand was forced on, uh, the arming of police where there was, uh, after Black Lives Matter, there was, uh, quite a significant, uh, uprising, uh, that was also, also challenging, uh, police violence and it had, and the introduction of guns had been heavily criticized by Māori and others. So that was one thing where they were, they were actually forced to, to back down and, 
not not sort of increase the arming of the police. So yeah, I think the only the only possibility is that their hand is forced by you know by popular pressure because it's they're not going to be curbed by the Greens, for example, in Parliament now that they're going to be governing alone. <laughs> well, that brings up, I guess, the next question is, what is, I guess, the position of the left and, I guess, the broader social movements in relation to this um, new election? Um, what are kind of some of the perspectives in terms of, in terms of how they would um, analyse this result? Well, uh, there... I mean, there are people who called for a just in the vote, obviously, and people who didn't. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends who you're talking about in terms of the left. I think on what you could call the broad left, you know, not necessarily the sect left or sort of Marxist left, uh, she's definitely beloved. I mean, it's often been quite hard to criticise uh, criticize her because... Uh, of the sort of adulation she receives. Uh, and I think for a lot of the smaller groups, uh, that does kind of pose a bit of a question, you know, how to, how to respond to that constructively. I mean, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think on the broad left, uh, there's a real, uh, people, uh, definitely buy into the whole, the whole Jacinda narrative. Uh, and she has, you know, she has an appealing personality. She's a, she's a competent crisis manager. But I just think we, we have to be fully aware that she's, she's not going to take any, any radical measures and any attempt to compare her to Bernie or, or to Jeremy Corbyn, I think is, is not, not really accurate. Uh, I don't, I, I don't think she represents that kind of polarizing politics that would be willing to frighten capital or implement major reforms. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I think the left, as say, it's the broad left is, is very sympathetic uh, and the kind of more uh, hard left is, is kind of trying to figure out how to, how to respond to the situation. Well, I guess the next question that I wanted to kind of address, I guess, is the, I guess, the question around industrial relations, it's like the, the state, I guess, of the trade union movement in relation to this government and workers' rights. Because I guess one of the things we noticed in Australia is the, the, in terms of the kind of post sort of COVID kind of 19 kind of recovery, the trend of of the Australian government, for example, has been basically to take away and wind back industrial um, relations. And of course, there's also, I also saw a recent sort of interesting sort of um, comment by the Marxist sort of economist, um, Michael Roberts, about the whole question around the New Zealand economy. And it's, um, and basically the New Zealand economy will be in this position where the government will be forced to essentially um, give concessions um, to business, and I guess want to hear kind of some of your comments. I guess on some of those kind of issues. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly over the last thirty to forty years, the uh, union movement has has largely been obliterated in New Zealand, uh, similar to a lot of a lot of countries after the introduction of of neoliberalism, uh, and in New Zealand that. That actually started with the fourth Labour government in the in the eighties, 
who introduced uh, a lot of radical neoliberal measures, uh, mostly around privatization and deregulation. But then uh, a bigger blow came from the, the following national government that uh, got rid of uh, compulsory unionism. Uh, and there were attempts to organize a, a general strike at that point, which were suppressed by the, by the trade union bureaucracy. So the unions essentially shot themselves in the foot of the leadership, shot themselves in the foot, uh, and compulsory unionism was destroyed. And not long after, you know, uh, the unionization is at 10% of the private sector. And 20% overall, including, including the public sector. There was really a, a, a retreat to, to the public sector and an unwillingness to, to really take, uh, take militant measures on the part of the union movement for a long time. Uh, and we've seen a decline of, of real wages of, over the past 30 years. Uh, and I mentioned that uh, that's part of what triggered uh, the struggle that resulted in MMP, mixed member proportional, uh, and there has been some room for sort of left-wing third, third parties to, to place, place pressure on these issues. Uh, but, I mean, through to the 2000s, you saw uh, more organising of hospitality workers, particularly through uh, a, a group called Unite, which, which organised uh, basically casual and service sector workers and ended up focusing quite strongly on fast food actually. Uh, and they, they've had some success in, in proving that you can organize in, in the sort of, uh, in the sections of the working class that are not necessarily conceived as traditionally proletarian. So, in other words, uh, yeah, the service sector, the casual sector, young people, uh, migrants, feminized industries. I mean, the average union, union member in New Zealand, uh, is, is a, a woman of color, is a woman who's Pacifica or Maori, uh, which very much doesn't fit with the common stereotype of the union movement. But, uh, as for this, this incoming government, I mean, uh, in, uh, in 2017, they, they sort of talked about how capitalism has, has failed people, sort of, uh, but they've, they've really stepped away from that language, uh, and certainly not been willing to take any, again, any really radical measures. They have, um, they have introduced some measures around, around union recognition that, uh, that weren't the case in, uh, under the last government. But then, for example, they also, uh, maintained what's called the Hobbit Law, which was a law that, um, basically cast workers in the film industry, particularly actors, as, uh, as independent contractors and therefore unable to unionize. And this was introduced as a union busting measure under the last government. Labour said they'd get rid of it and they didn't. They, they made some amendments to it. Uh, and yeah, they've, but, uh, they've, they've also increased the minimum wage, but then, you know, the last government was also increasing the minimum wage. So it's, it's really been more, more half measures. It's still, the, still not as bad as what you would get under national, but it's certainly not, uh, uh, again, willing to take any radical measures. We saw, uh, a struggle, uh, break out with the, with the nurses 
where basically the the leadership had endorsed uh, quite a dodgy deal, and there was this uh, basically rank and file opposition to to the leadership, which uh, which led to strike actions, and there was uh, there was a lot of community support for the nurses. Uh, unfortunately, in the end, after quite an inspiring struggle, they ended up with, uh, quite a poor agreement anyway. And so that was, that was a bit unfortunate because it's one of the few outbreaks of rank and file struggle we've really seen in some time. Uh, yeah, so it's, I mean, another thing is with, um, with COVID, uh, we've seen the Council of Trade Unions leadership kind of take a an approach of like managerial collaboration um similar to to what's been uh challenged in the Australian NTU uh but there hasn't really been much of a challenge to the kind of collaborationist approach uh of the CTU leadership so yeah i mean ag- again it's uh this government's approach to the union movement is a little better, but, uh, but certainly not willing to scare the horses, not willing to do anything that might result in capital flight. And unfortunately, uh, the line of a lot of union officialdom, uh, is really to clamp down on any criticism of, of the Labour government, uh, very much, very much still, uh, supportive, uh, generally of, of, of the Labour Party. That brings us, I guess, to the guest next question is, um, and this will be especially of interest to our listeners. Um, what are real? What are some of the current sort of issues and I guess grievances that are currently I guess driving kind of social movements in New Zealand right now? Like from my um, from my knowledge, there's currently this um, referendum around legalising cannabis that's currently going on. I'm not sure if that has been finished up yet. And I guess what is the position of this newly elected government in relation to some of these grievances? Um, is this government likely to um, address them? Um, what what is the kind of what is sort of the balance, I guess, of forces there? Well, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the cannabis referendum, and I think that's a good example of what I've been saying. Uh, in that, uh, in that, Jacinda has said she she is not going to uh, announce how she voted in the cannabis referendum. Uh, so, you know, even that, which is not exactly a particularly radical position, I would say now, like a, a lot of states have have legalized marijuana. But even with that, she's she's not willing to to take a public position. Uh, but in terms of movements, I mean, certainly historically and through to today, the uh, Māori sovereignty movement has been a really significant element of New Zealand politics. Uh, so yeah, that goes back. Well, it goes back to colonization, but uh, you know, you could also talk about the the Māori landmarch in the 70s, and, yeah, it has had an institutional impact as well where there's a flawed treaty settlement process that that has been really a concession to that that social movement. Uh, And, I mean, I mentioned uh, Ihu Matau, which is, uh, again, a struggle against, against property development of Indigenous land, that triggered uh, protests in, in a number of cities. 
so you had uh, Dunedin, which is on the opposite side of the country in, you know, a, a fairly white uh, area in the south. Uh, and in that, in that, in Dunedin, the entire city was shut down by a protest. And, you know, you had large actions in Wellington also and up at Ehumatau itself, which is near Auckland. Uh, there were protesters clash, clashing with police. So that was quite a, quite a polarizing moment in about mid 2019. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of depth that the Māori sovereignty movement has. Uh, that some other kind of, I guess, progressive and left forces don't, don't really have. They don't have the same kind of embedding in communities. And Jacinda has just been very vague with that kind of thing. I mean, her statements about Ihimatau are things like, we are here when the important conversations are happening. We are listening, which is kind of, you know, she could, uh, if she was a very different kind of political leader, she could just come out and say, this is Maori land and they have a right to decide how it's used. Uh, but obviously she's not that kind of a political leader. Uh, and I mean, I mentioned Black Lives Matter, how that, uh, inspired, uh, also protests in every, in every city in New Zealand. Uh, and that kind of ties in with a, uh, also relatively recent uh movement around prison abolition and and decarceration so uh there's a uh there's a group uh, of people uh people against prisons Aotearoa which has uh played a pretty significant role i mean it's not it's it's a relatively small group but it's had a reasonably big impact uh, and campaigning around, around prisoners' rights and ultimately for prison abolition. Uh, and that, uh, with, with the Black Lives Matter protest, setting off protests in New Zealand as well, uh, that, uh, that certainly had an impact. And as I say, uh, uh, the attempt to beef up police powers after, after the March 15th attack wasn't successful, uh, uh, largely because of public pressure. Um. Yeah, thanks for that, Annie. Um, this has been a very informative interview um, that I hope our listeners um, have enjoyed. Anyway, I think we will conclude um, this program now. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenlaf.org. Dot au.